Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro. 
David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren, Mr. John Copenhaver. How are you doing? I am doing splendidly, Al. Uh, how are Enjoying you? your vacation? Um, my vacation, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel like I have a vacation. I just write all the time and teach occasionally. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I saw some pictures of you. You were like in the sun, weren't you, or something, doing something wild? Uh, maybe earlier this summer, I was in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, at the beach. But recently, um, other than going to the Cure concert, which I was telling you about earlier, which was great. Um. I've been kind of like my head in my new book, so boring. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, to, not to me, but probably to the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah, you have to get out there and cause some trouble, you know. Yeah, all right. That's how you get things done. Mm-hmm. Spe- uh, you know, speaking of trouble, we've got a guest that's caused some trouble. So <laughs> we, we have to have her in here now and, and talk about why she's causing trouble and what's going on here. You know, how does she get there? So uh, let's welcome Miss Jillian Lauren, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, may I steal that? Speaking of trouble, for the um, title for my next memoir, please, Al. Yeah, you, yeah, do it. Go for <laughs> it. Okay. Go for it. I'll even I'll write a review. Page and I, you know, and I also want to tell you, John, I I completely understand that that there's no such thing as a vacation. I remember there was one, uh, you know, weekend. My husband and I decided. I imagine this was pre kids to go to Vegas, have one night, go see a show, go, and we got to the hotel room, sat down, and he was just like, "Just take out your computer. It's fine." It's really fine. <laughs> you don't have to pretend <laughs> like you actually want a vacation. Um, and I, and I think that that's sort of, um, you know, that's the double edge sword yeah. of what we do. Yeah. You know, like we're, we're yeah. compelled. We're driven. We have a sense of meaning. Um, we're infuriating to the people around us who want to go see a show or the beach. Oh, God, that- Right, I know. It's like I'm sitting at the beach and like like fidgeting. <laughs> yeah, like I'm supposed to enjoy this. Just I like... just had to schlep a whole bunch of chairs and <laughs> make sure my kids don't drown. And I I, I can't write. <laughs> I can't write under these conditions. Um, story. That's how it is. But but so then then why do you do it? Like, uh, what is it about you that is? Um, that that holds your focus so strongly. Um, you know, I I would say through uh, the research I did on this book, which was never meant to be a book, it was meant to be an eight thousand word article for New York Magazine that I thought, you know, it would put a bunch of heat on an underreported serial killer, might be able to expose the fact that he had killed many more people, and. Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm a person who's driven by curiosity um, and creativity and uh, and probably a little bit of that OCD. And <laughs> to tell you the truth, it runs in the family. Um, and uh, once something gets a hook in me, gets a hook in my brain and then gets a hook in my heart, 
and this story really did, that's when it turned into a book and and a true investigation and you know um you know i i believe my growth as an investigative journalist yeah well i think i think you're you, this is this is great but you've done it the right way in the sense that there's a lot of true crime out there because it's kind of exploded in 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 the country um but you're not just like writing secondhand you go in there and you meet and and of course this is uh documented on uh the documentary from stars confronting mm-hmm. a serial killer and and now now the book and you've um you spent time with the killer you got him to confess so you're really involved in the story as well you're not just taking second hand or third hand you're actually doing the job um that's quite the commitment but it also i think it puts you up with the the great true crime writers myself it puts it puts you in that place where when someone reads the book they're getting the real goods they're not getting second third hand information absolutely and uh, that was not the plan al no <laughs> uh, uh this was going to be my real moment of traditional reportage you know i'm i'm very well known as a confessional memoirist um you know uh, in many different subjects um because you know many like i said i'm driven by curiosity i'll you know follow whatever i find compelling um and i i've always found crime compelling but you know i i certainly didn't mean to insert myself in the middle of the story part of my intention was to take myself out of the center of the story as i as i began working on this project i was working on a novel um which would be my second novel my first is a, a book called pretty which was the first book i wrote um and uh you know i was i was craving like that that trip into fiction again you know that trip into my mind again um in which i could inhabit other characters and yes of course always sort of telling my story because what other story do we have on this earth um you know i have these eyes i have this brain um but you know I, um you know to go to those other lands we go to writing fiction and i wound up in a conversation with detective mitzi roberts who is a very fancy detective uh at the mm-hmm. LAPD robbery homicide division she is who um if you're a fan of michael connelly and really who isn't um mm-hmm. the renee ballard character is based on mitzi and i can tell you that the real thing uh is even more stunning and i did an interview with her uh that was about police procedure um it was about certain historical crimes that she as a cold case specialist knew about and it wasn't until the very end that i asked her you know what's the case you were the most proud of and she said i'm proud of them all but i did catch this serial killer once and that was pretty cool and it was the last watery remains, the iced tea of this interview that nobody gets with this. I was like, <laughs> I screwed this whole thing up. And I, I just said, I buried the lead. And she said, I'm not the one doing the questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Which is very Mitzi. And she had me. 
And I was like, well, tell me about this. And she explained that there was this serial killer, Samuel Little, who had been convicted in 2014. She was the lead investigating officer on um, on that investigation. You know, there was a very exciting cross-country manhunt to find him when, you know, what happened was DNA technology caught up with him and a Department of Justice grant to the LAPD allowed them to screen cold case evidence and they were able to find three hits, three matching hits on three cold cases, murders uh, of women in the late eighties um, in South Los Angeles, where women were turning up in dumpsters nearly every morning. We had seven or eight serial killers, active serial killers, in South Los Angeles during that time because it was so both over and under policed. Um, it was a very underserved community and, uh, and a community of invisible women essentially. Um, and Mitzi told me that uh, she knew that he had killed many more women across the country. He had a rap sheet like no one had seen like the, District Attorney, the Deputy District Attorney, Beth Silverman, who prosecuted Sam, also prosecuted Chester Turner, Michael Hughes, um, Southside Slayer. Um, You know, she's the one who, like, takes down the big sexual serial killers. And even she was like, I've never seen a rap sheet like this in my life brought tears to my eyes because every single day they had him and every other day he managed to kill someone else. Right. Now this is Sam little. And so we don't even at this point, even now, do we know how many people he actually killed? Like even before what's confirmed, like maybe in the sixties and, and, early 70s and that again in the early 70s yeah i believe i do have a pretty comprehensive count um you know and everyone wants to know the number the number um and i don't know that it will ever be known with exactitude and i realize i did jump the story a little bit there and uh you know not say that once i realized that there might be all these other victims um that was really what got me contacting New York Magazine and saying, you know, I think I can do this thing. Let me, uh, here's my angle. I'm going to talk to the killer. Started writing to him, got myself into that prison and began to do the interviews that elicited the confessions. So not all of these are my confessions. These are the official confessions to the FBI, to local jurisdictions, um, uh, 93 confessions 63 confirmed uh as of now and i actually got to for the first time in a long time i think it's been almost a year that we've had another solving a case um, i made a map at the beginning right you know like a traditional map where i put pins in it because it was so hard as the numbers started mounting it was really so hard for me to wrap my head around a what what i had gotten myself into talk about having a talent for trouble you know, inserted myself into the middle of a federal investigation and the body count is mounting. And it's even hard for me to get my mind around like that every single one of 
these was a person. So I made this tactile map and I got to change out a pin the other day. You know, the red pins are for the unsolved and the black pins are for the solved. So this really, this really, in a sense, it, it starts out as something quite a bit more innocent. I guess that's a, a type of word I'll use here, but it sort of starts out with something else in mind and you get drawn into this and now you feel let's say an obligation or a need to go further and find out more and even the truth and and what's going on and it sort of i guess in a way it, it obsessed you in a sense it took a minute it didn't start yeah. that way right um right. you know it, it started you're right i mean and i wouldn't even, i wouldn't even say innocent you know like i think a lot of people you know, portray me and the documentary that Joe Berlinger made about me, you know, documents me a little bit further along in the process of when I really started to become involved in these victims' cases and the victims' lives. But, you know, when I first walked into that men's maximum security prison, it seemed just like an adventure, a, a surreal experience. As a writer, you're always looking to see a world you've never seen. I certainly have never seen a visiting room in a men's maximum security prison. I did know a few scumbags that I called who had done time there at California State Prison LA. And I said, like, how do I do this? And they totally gave me the rundown. They're like, okay, you can try to get an appointment. You're not going to get an appointment. Leave your house at 4.30 in the morning. You're going to start lining up at 6. They let the visitors in at 9.30. So bring a book. Um, and it's true, the cars line up and, um, you know, and then you get your number and you go in and you wait. And I, I had no idea what I was waiting for. Um, I was so prepared. I really thought I was so prepared. And, uh, I do have an ace in the hole that I always have to admit. My aunt is a very famous psychiatrist who has worked at Harvard University for 40 years and is a famous diagnostician. And, uh, you know, I've been like begging her to tell me, you know, how to do this, how to talk to a psychopath, what it's going to feel like, what it's going to be like. And uh, I remember her last piece of advice was don't wear an underwire. You're going to set off the metal detectors. And it was the one thing I forgot. <laughs> you always forget something. You know, I was like, I, had, you know, I had like everything clocked in my mind. I had like four different cards in my pocket. If I couldn't get him to talk this way, I was going to try to get him to talk this way. If I didn't, you know, and, uh, and then I was like, I, <laughs> underwire in my bra and there are no sharp objects around no. and so I had to chew it out in the bathroom you know and, and the women who were there visiting the inmates were like you got this girl chew that out <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I had to bring all. the underwires to the <laughs> sheriff's deputies right? you right. know and yeah. I was like here they are <laughs> don't ask me how I got them. <laughs> <laughs> don't ask, don't tell here, okay? Um, you know, and I walked, and and it was, I mean, the feeling of that prison is biblical. It, it, it's, it's one of the largest prison industrial complexes in the nation. You know, it's tremendously overcrowded. It's in the middle of a desert um, that is either 110 degrees or 40 degrees. 
um, and changes in a second. Uh, and, uh, you know, it really had this feeling of punishment in the middle of the desert. And, you know, I walked into B block mm. and I expected everything I'd seen in the movies, which is what, uh, this is how we, this is wh- how we process yeah, these things. Not, yeah. This is how we think we understand. <laughs> Crime, or we, you know, we don't understand. It's not edited with a soundtrack, with you know, and that I thought there'd be a piece of glass and the whole hand thing and the telephone, and you know, and I walked into a visiting room that was little plastic tables and inmates visiting with their babies, and uh, you know, and Legos in the corner and a photo booth and. Vending machines, which I knew to bring quarters from, from those scumbags, bless them, said, don't, do not go there without quarters. The vending machines are not cool. <laughs> um, and I just guessed and picked a couple things, picked some Funyuns and little Debbie cakes, a couple Cokes and sat down and was watching the wrong door. And that <laughs> man was in a wheelchair and he rolled up behind me. And he said, you know, ooh, we, you are my angel come from heaven to yeah. save me. God knew that I was lonely and he sent me you. And I almost inside, it's like, ah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was watching your door. I was, <laughs> um, you know, and you'll hear me laugh. And, uh, you know, I think that's something that you'll find very common. I mean, you'll find it common amongst cops. You'll find it common amongst people who, um, you know, I mean, there were times I was spending 18 hours a day with my head in crime scene photos. And my husband was saying, like, like, do not wind up that scene in the movie where you're, like, passed out at four in the morning and, a like, spread of crime scene photos on your office floor and one of our kids walks in. Exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. He was like, <laughs> I told you, like, three months ago, don't do this. Um, but it did, you know, like the farther I got in, the more it compelled me. And also, you know, when I began to see the efficacy of what I was doing and the results, and also I'm a bit of a fighter. I mean, it's one of the things that I connected about with Sam. You know, he's a, he was a middleweight boxer. Um, he was sort of a failed boxer. He's a boxer in prison. Um, you know, and he was a, big man with catcher's mitts for hands. Uh, and I, I also am a boxer and I know a lot about the fights. Um, you know, so in our first conversations, you know, I'm saying pound for pound who you think's the best. And he was like, who do you think you are? You know, like little white girl walking in here, <laughs> like pound for pound, who do I think's the best? You know? And his answer, in case you're wondering, was Sugar Ray Robinson, <laughs> you know, and uh, and that's sort of how I I thought yeah. of it, going into a match with him. I was like, what if, you know, okay, so your fighter is Sugar Ray Robinson, mine Sugar Ray Leonard, like fast, you know, like that that man is fast and can dance, you know, yeah. and and you're not gonna get a hit in. When I sort of had to start playing those games you play in your mind when you have to keep yourself composed and difficult situations, you know, like I'm Leonard, you know, like yeah. you can't, you can't touch me. I mean, that's the champ. You can't touch me. That's the <laughs> champ. But, um, yeah. yeah. Then you whip out the under wires from your bra <laughs> and say, look at this, bud. 
I just chewed these out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm too smart. I'm too fast. I'm too pretty. And you That's can't right. touch me. Yeah. <gasps> um, but, you know, then walk out to the car. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what cry. I did. Yeah, exactly. But, there just wasn't. There's not a place no. for it in there. Plus, it wouldn't. It wouldn't sit well, right? I mean, you'd be a mess if you if you lose it while you're there. Um, well, I'd be. I mean, I'd be an unworthy adversary. Right. You and know, at least in his eyes, and then that would be the end of it in a sense. Right. He'd be bored. Right. He'd be yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, he he needed he needed a good fight. Yeah, I have to, you know, because I I did the same thing, mm-hmm. and for me, when I met um, the first serial killer I met, mm-hmm. I was kind of in the same boat as you. I was I went through and I tried to find out things ahead of time, and and it was all the same. It sounds very similar, only he didn't come out in a wheelchair. But the thing is, um, I found him not to be what I expected him to be, mm-hmm. and that in itself was kind of something that threw me at the beginning because I had all these expectations. Did you feel the same way about uh, Little? Absolutely. Um, I knew um, I knew I was getting into the ring with a liar. And, you know, my aunt had told me, she's like, don't expect him to even be able to tease the lies from the truth necessarily. Like he may have been telling himself this story about his innocence the whole time. He may yet believe it. So maybe take some time. And that that was actually one of the great gifts of this story, um, although it, it did take a toll on my life, was that I had that much time to really observe and sort of, you know, uh, tease apart, you know, some of the really uh, this incomprehensible braid that is, you know, uh, that are these aberrant, criminals these sexual psychopaths these people who who kill other people for fun and for most of us that's uh i mean i don't know al did it leave you at the end did you have like a big answer a big no. why because i i don't yeah. either yeah. i was, I, I, I think i say in my book you know like <laughs> here's here's a here's a union interpretation here's a conversation with one of the top neuroscientists in the world doing pet scans on psychopathy here you know or antisocial personality disorder is is the clinical designation i'm sort of just you know talking in a colloquial way with you guys right now and how we talk about true crime and what i think interests us so much about it is we're just like why and I started to wonder by the end of the interviews if, you know, the questions just had to be more complex. Like, not only why, but, you know, like, how does his his apologism for himself, you know, his greed, his, you know, just essential nature of wanting and taking. He wanted it. He took it. He figured out a justification afterwards. It generally had to do some with something with St. Paul on the road to Damascus. Um, and um, I was like, Jesus is not your apologist. And he was like, well, you think that because you're a sinner. But don't worry, I, I don't hold that against you. And I was like, you actually do. Thank you, you. you. No, I was like, no, you do, though. Like, you hold everything against me. 
and that above all, um, you know, and I believe that he was talking about my first memoir, which is about, you know, me being the mistress of a prince when I was a teenager and, you know, the inmates were teasing him. I was a hoe, you know, he's like, you're a hoe, Jill. They're telling me you're a hoe. And I was like, all right, then. Well, I'm not a perverted, maniacal, murdering maniac. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess I win this one. <laughs> but, um, I, I mean, no, I really did talk to him that way. Not right, not right away. No, no, you have to get that. But eventually we got there. Um, and, you know, um, I found it so similar to the, you know, interviews I'd read, you know, to the work you've done and to, um, you know, the experience people have had with serial killers. Um, they have the same sort of references. I think they, there were some times I'm like, y'all didn't grow up in a world in which no, no other people existed who were serial killers, right? It's not like a zombie movie. All of a yeah. sudden, people are like, what is this thing? There's some disease that's turning people's brains into what do we do with them? Like, you've never seen a zombie movie? You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in your world here, there's no zombie movies? Um, you know, but in their world, there are serial killers. And I do believe that they sort of crib from each other. You know, there's sort of references, their apologies, their, um, you know, their insistence on being saved, on being forgiven, um, right. being right, yeah. with the, right with their makers. And, you know, if you're not, that's your problem. If my victim yeah. and if my victims weren't, that's even well, a bigger problem. Yeah, they deserved it then. Do you think that they... Um don't even understand why they do it. And they're trying to make some sort of, it's an excuse, but it's also meaning for themselves out of it. Is that part of it? Or do you think it's just like pure deception? I think, you know, I asked Sam and he was a very intelligent man, you know, and we broke it down, but you know, I mean, there were things there were, there was head trauma. Mm -hmm. There was sexual abuse as a young man there was you know long periods of very abusive incarceration you know things that will mess up your brain um and perhaps if you know all of these genetic and brain structural like you know if that time bomb is already there mm -hmm. and the switch gets flipped um I asked him, you know, if any of those things were different, though, do you think that you would have been different? And he said, no. Mm, wow. I said, what if there was some 12-year-old boys, like, you know, stealing detective magazines and, and jerking off to necks and thinking about strangulation? And, and, I mean, for him, you know, he was unable to get an erection unless he believed he was killing somebody. Um and, you know, his entire sexuality was about death. And, uh, you know, I said, if there was a 12-year-old boy and, you know, he was, he was stealing these magazines, you know, and he was looking at this imagery and he was having these thoughts, you know, what do you think could be done? I said, nothing. 
Like I, I do believe that he thought it, it, he came baked as he was, and that God made him as he was. Hmm. Um, and and therefore, in some ways, he was the victim. Why oh, wow. did why did he have <laughs> why did he have to be born wanting these things? That's just that's remarkable. Like when I'm you know I'm thinking about this whole story, I. I continue to think about two things. One, of course, is, you know, Sam himself, but also sure. the system right. that allowed Sam to do, I don't, maybe allowed isn't the quite, quite the right word, but, um, you know, the, the systemic problems that we're having as a country, whether it's racism or how, you know, we, we work through criminal justice, mm-hmm. like, that also seems pretty horrifying. <laughs> well, John, you know, I, I think that that allow is actually the word that I use in yeah. the book. I mean, there's a very famous Bobby Kennedy quote that is every generation gets the criminal it deserves and mm. the law mm. enforcement it demands. And, you know, my commentary on that was, you know, I'm not sure that Sam Little was the criminal we deserved. I don't know if I felt comfortable saying that. But, you know, I will say that he was a criminal we allowed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, and there were many systemic problems within the criminal justice system. And also, you know, like both federal and local. And, and one of those problems, um, you know, is still very much in contention and um, something that could make great strides in law enforcement um, is, you know, our VICAP system, our violent criminal apprehension system, which is a federal behaviorally based database. So it's not just DNA. It can connect behaviors across jurisdictions across the country, right? When, when otherwise there, there is no mandated system. Like somebody's killing, you know, then there's this one random killing in Macon, Georgia. There's another random killing in Long Beach. There's a random killing. And until those behavioral patterns and now DNA start to get connected, it becomes very hard to catch serial killers, you know, um, and people who kill strangers. So, you know, traditional gumshoe work doesn't always do the trick um so you know but that's not mandated it's voluntary Mm. canada has a very similar system that is that's mandatory and um and it works exceptionally well so a lot of what i started to learn was that you know there was a lack of communication between jurisdictions um that certainly at the time in the 70s and 80s and looking at many of these communities in the south um there were transgender victims uh, it was illegal to be transgender in florida who's going to report a transgender woman who goes missing her friend you know is going to walk down to the police station get herself arrested um and so you know sam worked very much in these shadows in these loopholes and I like to point out that, you know, we got the law enforcement we demanded. I don't feel like we were necessarily, or that all these victims were necessarily like, you know, victims of the cops. Because mm-hmm. Sam was, you know, or dismissal by the cops. Although that was certainly part of it, you know, there was a, there was a code that was very popular in Los Angeles in the 80s, and they called in a homicide of, prostitute marginalized women of color found in a dumpster 
They would say, you know, there's a homicide. Uh, there's 187 on 55th and Central, and it's an NHI. There are no humans involved. Or, you know, Whoa. yeah, there's a jumper on Van Ness. It's a no one. Um, and uh, so, you know, there certainly was that, you know, the idea that there are people that are worth more and people are worth less in society. But I believe that as a society, we create those hierarchies as well because, you know, Sam was acquitted by a jury of his peers. Sam was, there was a failure to indict by a grand jury. Sam served 18 months of a four-year sentence uh, f- that was pled down from attempted murder to, it was happened to be a victim who lived, um, pled down to kidnapping and assault, served 18 months, got out of jail in San Diego, drove to L.A. and killed two women that night. So it was so much like the larger social dismissal of violence against women, and particularly these women who had, you know, in many people's eyes, just put themselves in harm's way. Why were you on that street at that night? Why did you get in that car? You know, and and why are you a credible eyewitness? Um, as credible and amazing as as some of the eyewitness testimony was just their character made it discreditable and um you know and that was us yeah you know that wasn't just the cops you can't you know you can't just you know blame the fbi we have to all take responsibility for you know i mean like the bosch tv show just because i was working with the cop who's the character was based on he was really helping me work my way through this investigation i was lucky enough to work with uh retired police detective rick jackson you know said everybody counts or nobody counts um you know it's sort of a it's a slogan from a fictional character but um the lapd has sort of taken it on as their own and um it's one that i really held close to my heart as I worked on this, everybody counts yeah. or nobody counts and well, there, everyone's got to be in yeah. on it. Yeah. And it does take time. Yeah. It takes time. You know, I write, you know, cause even covering some of the murders from the sixties and stuff, gay mm-hmm. murders, you look at uh, the police clippings and you look at the, the reports in the, in the newspapers and, and the police chief, well, homosexuals or criminals, I'd right. never hire one, you know, so that's that you can't, you can take, so that's the mentality of someone in the 60s, let's say in a police force, and you can't have them be in that job for 20, 25 years, and all of a sudden the government goes, well, we've changed the law, it's no longer illegal, and have them just change their feelings overnight. It's, like that's, You know, that's a I've big talked problem. to some who have, yeah. and I've talked to some who haven't. You know, yeah. and but I really have talked to some who have who have said, you know, um, you know, I talked to some cops in the South who said, you know, uh, I'm ashamed right. of the way that that we treated the, you know, the black prostitutes in this town in the early 80s, that you really couldn't commit a crime against a black prostitute. It wasn't it wasn't considered a crime. Right. It, you know, that that person was less of a person to begin with. Um, wasn't where their resources were going to be allocated. Um, you know, so I, I have had cops been very thoughtful 
you know, and take their comeuppance and also, you know, fight for cold cases now. And um, a lot of retired detectives will do, you know, volunteer work on cold cases too. And um, so, uh, you know, I think that the advancing technology gives us, you know, gives us a chance to make some reparations, um, but we have to care to do so. Um, and, and that's what I hope to do with this book. I mean, I, I don't write message books, you know, I'm not on a soapbox. Um, you know, it wasn't, I didn't walk in there politically motivated. I walked in there probably both opportunistically and personally as a victim of domestic violence, probably a little angry, want to take this guy down. <laughs> um, you know, that was definitely in there and grew. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, um, what I really want to do, you know, I want to entertain people. I'm a writer. Um, and by telling this story that I believe the scope of is, it, it, it's not just the gruesomeness of the murders. It's, you know, these women's, the victims' lives are fascinating and I do a deep dive into them. The, the law enforcement officers are incredible characters. I have a real cowboy in my book. I have a real giant <laughs> six foot three inch cowboy. I couldn't believe it when I saw it. <laughs> I was like, you are six, seven in that hat. You are really wearing that hat. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never seen the Texas Ranger. Someone said to me at a party, they were like, are you having an affair with a baseball player? I was like, I'm going down to see a Texas Ranger. <laughs> said, are you having an affair with a baseball player? I was like, thanks, but no. <laughs> um, no, I'm really actually going to meet a Texas Ranger. And, uh, um, a real one. Yeah, a real one. And, uh, you know, and, and, and he taught me a great deal as well, Texas Ranger James Holland, you know, and he was, um, you know, a complicated character in my life, but certainly spearheaded this effort and a tremendous amount of, of respect for his passion. So, you know, I, I, I did get this incredible, um, you know, like quilt of this country and, and, you know, have been left to grapple with many of my own feelings. Um, and I sort of, you, you caught me on a weird day. Can I tell you why? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, what's going on? Um, because I'm having the first sort of little private event for my book. My book comes out on the 18th of, uh, of July of this month, 18th of July. Yeah. Uh, you can get all kinds of great pre-order incentives right now on my website. And I woke up this morning and I, I've been answering a lot of questions that where people say, you know, you, you became impassioned about giving these women back their voices, like their voices were taken away from them. And you have this voice. I mean, really, please, you couldn't shut me up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just try to interrupt me. <laughs> Not even you, Al. <laughs> but, um, you know, that, and I sort of woke up this morning and I was like, oh my gosh, it's the other way around. Like, there was always something that just like a little bit tonally hit wrong for me about it. I'm like, you know, I'm giving these women back their voices. I was like, I don't have the power to do that. I don't even necessarily have the right to do that. 
I, I would pray to them, like, please, you know, just like, let me give it a shot. I'm the, I'm the best you got. No one else is going to try. Let me give, let me give your voice a shot, you know? And then I woke up this morning and I was just like, they gave me a chance to like express my voice, like express my anger, you know, about the violence that I've seen and, you know, and the weight of this that I've lived with and the voice in Sam's head and the fury, you know, and the years of my life I've spent, you know, as a woman in this world, um, and a troublemaker, like you pointed out, we do tend, we do tend to get into trouble. And, uh, and I thought, you know, I mean, the gift has been that this book kind of gave me my voice, not the other way around. So, so how do you think this has changed you, this whole process? Cause I know, I know whenever I do one of these things, it's, 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 it's kind of like how you're, describing it's all over the place there's all sorts of emotion and feeling and Mm -hmm. anger and happiness and there's all sorts of thoughts that go through the mind and and the whole time that you're doing it it's up and down like a toilet seat you know Mm -hmm. so what i have three boys in my house so yeah just just about exactly like that yes (laughs) so so you know but but at the end of it when you're you're looking back now this is coming out here shortly Mm -hmm. so it's it's just about done and it's going to be, it's out to the world. It's theirs now. So, but how right. is it for you? How has this changed you? How are you different now compared to when you started this process? I'm a more serious person and I, I know it doesn't always, that doesn't always read. Um, there was a sort of um, a flippancy or a glibness that I think that was a defense mechanism for me always. You know, if you can be clever enough. Right. I'm small. I mean, I'm not that small, but I couldn't give you a fight. And so, you know, my mouth has always been my, my, my greatest weapon. And, um, I just started to put my head down into the research and take myself seriously as a journalist and take myself seriously in courtrooms and realize that, you know, like there are, there are just some things that like this armor that I built are not going to protect me from, and they're certainly not helping anyone else. You know, they're certainly not helping any of these women. They're certainly not helping, you know, like that kind of steeliness is not helping me tell this story in a vulnerable way. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to drop it. Not all the time. It's still, it's still there. It's hanging. <laughs> it's hanging by the door. I'll put it on before I leave. <laughs> but, um, you know, it made me a more serious writer and a serious journalist and a serious person. And I don't think that that's necessarily made me a whole lot more fun. You know, Scott's like, way to bring down a room. If anyone can bring down a room, it's you. Can we not do the murder tonight? And, um, you know, and, and I also hope that just like it raised the level of my writing, um, you know, every project does. You think it's supposed to get easier? I, like, I think, you know, this is my fifth book. First one's still in a drawer. You know, the, my very first attempt. Um, so it's the fifth book I've written, fourth book I've published, you know, uh, two New York Times bestsellers. Isn't it supposed to get easier? And oh, I find no. that each book gets harder. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, harder. you know, sort of the, the bar raises. And, um, also, you know, I'm kind of, I kind of sucked in now. I, when I started, I was like, I'm not writing about serial killers the rest of my life. You know, I'm not, 
looking for an entire career in true crime. And then, you know, it, it turns out I do sort of have a, I do sort of have a way about me and uh, uh, a talent for it. Um, and one of the victim's sisters who I'm, I'm very close to and actually works in the military, I, you know, at one point I had an honest conversation with her and I said, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that I was able to, you know, be able to provide some closure for your family. I, I don't know that I can keep doing this work. And she said, I, I don't know that you get to choose. <laughs> <laughs> like the work kind of chooses you. So I, I do think that at the end of this project, you know, the work has chosen me and I'm going to continue with it. Right. What, what, so what do you, what's the biggest point you want people to, to take away from the book? There's the entertainment and there's of course, all the, the things that went on in the case and the, the knowledge that they'll learn and from your interviews and stuff. But at the end of the day, is there something you want a reader to be aware of now after reading this book. As you said, you know, you walked away from a conversation with your first serial killer with all your assumptions challenged. Um, I'd like to do the same. I'd like to challenge people's assumptions, you know, and, and not just about these monsters who fascinate us for good reason. Um, monsters are fascinating. Monsters are frightening. I want them to go away with with questions about you know humanism and and questions about themselves you know how we compartmentalize how we judge people um how we allot worth in this life to a human being um and I would love to invite them and all these amazing web sleuth communities um who are are so committed and brilliant um you know and and dive through the Charlie project and the Doe project and NamUs and really like are are I think a great resource for this country. I, I want to invite everyone in. Um not just in the search for Sam Little's victims, although you know that's become my my specialty right now, um closing that gap between the confession number and the number of clearances. You know, I, I'll still be working on that. Um but just to look at the look at the challenges we're facing, you know, with our law enforcement, with um, our system of communication, and with how we look at each other as people. Are you on social media? Do you have like a uh, website and you, you TikTok dancing and all that stuff? Like, where how, where do people find? <laughs> you will not find me dancing. Uh, I do get maced. I, I do do some self-defense. Um, so you can find me on TikTok, Jillian Lauren Author, and that is where I'm doing a lot of missing persons. Um, I'm, you know, talking about a true crime. I do uh, book reviews that people really enjoy, um, sometimes even, you know, movie reviews. I do some self-defense, um, you know, just basics of self-defense. Um and uh but for the most part um you know i'm i'm talking about cold case victims and cold, unsolved cold cases and um inviting people into that conversation with me and talking about what you know it was it was like to have this long term you know friendship relationship dialogue with a serial killer and people are interested in that and um so tiktok my Instagram um, is Jillian Lauren. 
Um, I think I, I, I quit and rejoin Twitter every other day. Yeah. <laughs> but it's Jilly, it's Jilly Lauren. <laughs> My assistant was like, I think you just lost like all 19,000 of your followers. I was like, I don't care. I'm so pissed at Elon Musk right now. I don't even care. <laughs> um, but I think I'm there actually Lauren now. Um, you know, Facebook, whatever, but my TikTok, I'm very excited about. I'm putting a lot of, a lot of work into the missing persons work there. Um, and, and my Instagram as well. Well, fantastic. Not only will I follow you on all those, but, um, yeah. Oh, the- and check out, like I said, we have these incredible pre-order incentives on my website right now, JillianLauren.com. Fantastic. We're going to put all that up on the website so people can find it and, and get out there and, and, uh, great book and, uh, and, uh, see what you're doing on TikTok. But with, with all, everything, how was the pandemic and trying to finish this book during the pandemic for you? Did it have a big effect? It was, I mean, I, it, it had the effect that it had in all our lives. I think, I mean, depending on, you know, how much of your life was like spent out in the world. I mean, so much of my research was, um, frankly, like really walking around, talking to people. And all of a sudden I was, I was in my home setting up a homeschool at four in the morning, you know, and, and trying to finish this book. I'm under contract. I can no longer visit Sam. I'm talking to him on the phone. Um, all the cops I know who, you know, all the detectives that I know are in uniform. Um, and in the streets, you know, there are protests and, um, and I was in the middle of shooting a documentary. So Joe and the documentary crew were meant to travel to all these other places in the country and, um, wound up setting up camp in my driveway. We had a, like a COVID truck in the driveway and had to finish the documentary in my house. You know, yeah. which I'm actually the one thing that I always makes me really, really happy about. Well, there are many things that make me happy about the last, the last episode, episode five of Confronting a Serial Killer. I'm very proud of it's the cameras happened to be there when I solved a murder. Oh, what are the chances? Um, so they really caught that moment when I got the call. Um, and people are like, if they made, you made that up, right? Like you, you did it again. I was like, no, that was actually me getting <laughs> wow. that call. That was like, are you sitting down? You know, that, that case is still open. The name is Alice Denise Duval. It matches all your details. You know, congratulations, kiddo. You just solved a murder. And I was like, wow. uh, you know, just like the shock, the tears, the, you know, the, so the cameras there and, um, you know, my, my two little dogs who have since died, they were very old, had a beautiful glamour shot in episode five. <laughs> so I think at least Calvin and Peanut had their moment in the sun. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so there's that. And um, then just JillianLearn.com. You can find it all there. Fantastic. Well, we appreciate you being on the show, talking about your, your life as the serial kill, killer hunter. Whisper, um, whisper, slayer, hunter. <laughs> I don't know. They, there are a lot of words they use. I sort of think of myself as a humanist above all, uh, possibly a bit of a, possibly a bit of a hustler. I was raised, I was raised yeah. by a gambler. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Sets it all. Yeah. So now the book, Behold the Monster. Yes. 
confronting America's most prolific serial killer. And um, we appreciate you being here. The author is Jillian Lauren. And thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.